In this episode, I'm talking with Violet Mataru. Violet is a Kenyan zoologist and veteran wildlife researcher and campaigner. She has over 20 years' experience as a conservationist and community educator. As Executive Director of Millennium Community Development Initiatives, she delivers community conservation programmes which address natural resource management challenges in Kenya. Violet started her career within the Kenya Wildlife Service as a researcher on the Elephant Programme. She has gone on to become a consultant evaluating programmes for many intergovernmental bodies and NGOs, including UNDP, UNEP, IUCN and WWF. Here we talk about the exclusivity of access to nature and environmental governance in Kenya, through biases towards Western interests within game parks, funding and organisational leadership. We discuss the failure of Western funding and conservation models and the inequity they produce and unpick the tripart collusion of conservation, colonialism and corporations on severing people from nature whilst creating the illusion of protection and care. Violet talks about her inspiring conservation work with local communities and reconnecting urban populations with wildlife and calls for the diaspora to reconnect with nature on the continent through culture and embracing our heritage. So I'm really excited today to be speaking with Violet Mataru, a zoologist, researcher and campaigner with extensive expertise in wildlife conservation and the management of natural resources. Hi Violet. Hi. Welcome. Now your biography is much wider than I just mentioned and hopefully we'll show that through our, our conversation that you've got extensive experience in the environmental sector. Do you want to start by telling us how you got involved in conservation? What drew you to the sector? Okay, so I I, I grew up on a farm. We grew up on a farm on the outskirts of Nairobi, which is the capital city of Kenya. And growing up, I was just fascinated by nature because I'd look after my father's cows. So I'd go and sit as the cows were feeding. I'd be looking at, you know, I'd sit by the river, listen to, you know, the sounds of a river and then watch the beetles, the down beetles doing, you know, doing their thing. And basically it was a time of connecting with nature. And even when there'd be any problems, even in the home, you could take off and just sit somewhere quietly in nature. So when I got to university, I chose to do zoology as my major, not really knowing what job I'd have in future, but just because of my my love for nature. Mm. So when I finished university, I got a job with the Kenya Wildlife Service as a researcher in the elephant program. So basically our job was to go into the forest and using tra- a transect, that's a straight line in a particular direction, would go counting the piles of elephant dung on each side of the straight line. And there was a formula to, to use the dung density to calculate the population of forest elephants because forest elephants are different from the ones that are in the open grasslands, open savanna grasslands, because those you can actually do actual aerial counts. You can see the, the elephants in the grasslands, but in the forest, you can't see. 
because of the thick canopy. Yes, yeah. So we would do that and it was quite intensive work. And I was fascinated by the use of this data, which was at best very, very shaky data because of just the sheer size of the forest and the distance of transects that would actually be able to cover in a day and how that data was manipulated and used at the convention CITES, that is a convention on the trade of uh, in endangered species in Japan, to justify that Kenya's population, elephant population, had crashed from a high of some number to a low of some number. So in essence, from my experience and from my understanding as a researcher, I realized that the two figures were pulled from basically the air, but it was used to say that scientific research had been conducted to justify that. So I started seeing a lot of issues with the conservation sector in in Kenya specifically, Mm. especially how the white dominated it was. The white people, we had Richard, Dr. Richard Leakey as the director of Kenya Wildlife Service, and all major programs were headed by white people. And it was the white people's narrative, whatever narrative they'd pick, they would then use science, they'd use fake science to justify positions. And at the same time, I saw the other side of wildlife interactions with communities, because another of our tasks was to document human wildlife conflict, especially in areas, forested areas, because like around Mount Kenya, the forest would come out and raid the the farms of the communities living around these forests, and it would destroy their livelihoods. But then when we present that data to the white establishment of the conservation government institution, they dismiss the the plight of the common Kenyan. And I felt really a betrayal of my own people because the same elephant that would bring in a lot of money in terms of tourism was causing a lot of devastation and poverty for the communities. But the people who are making the money out of wildlife in Kenya are not the people who bear the cost of hosting this wildlife mm. within communities. And I, I, I felt a strong sense of needing to get more community-based conservation from Black Kenyans, educated Black Kenyans like us, to influence decision-making in the wildlife sector. And that's now been what I've been working with trying to get more professional Kenyans to understand and be involved in the conservation sector, to understand the politics, to understand the economics. And it's not easy because there are a lot of vested interests in yes. the sector. Within the colonial uh, mindset, the colonial framework within the environmental field, there's a very big division between the idea of wildlife conservation as separate to the communities that live in those areas and depend on those resources. Yes, because if you just look historically, I use Kenya as an example, but you can extrapolate it to other African countries. You remember Kenya and East Africa was a major destination for big game hunting. Actually, the term, the big five, was coined by the hunters. So you had Roosevelt, you had the royal family coming to do big game hunting. So they came and they would kill the big five 
which is the rhino, the elephant, the leopard. I'll remember the buffalo and the last one, and anyway, the big the lion. One. Yes, they were killing them at such a high rate that they themselves started seeing this. We are decimating our very game, and that's where the word game comes from to describe wildlife. It was game to them to be killed for sport. So they then set up protected areas, national parks, where they kicked out communities and set these protected areas so that they they and only they could hunt in these areas. So you have some of the big national parks, like we have the Savo National Park, that were set up actually by white hunters so that they could have exclusive rights to come and hunt in those areas. So they, they completely made uh, hunting by communities, which was practiced traditionally, was criminalized. Mm. But you could only hunt if you got a license to hunt. And most of the people who could get a license to hunt were white people. Mm. So there was that alienation where communities were moved out of these areas to be protected. Then later in Kenya, in 1977, we banned trophy hunting, the sport hunting. But it still continues in our neighbor, Tanzania, in our neighboring country, Uganda. It's still legal in Southern Africa, which is it's a whole industry. Mm. What that essentially did was to alienate communities from their natural resources. It alienated communities from the forest that they knew, the herbs they would use to treat different ailments. And in addition to, to, to that alienation, there was the fear by white people because of the knowledge of the black, the Africans, of these natural resources. For example, the Mount Kenya area. Mount Kenya forest was used as a hideout by the freedom fighters because they knew the forest, they knew how to survive within the forest, and because the white people would get massacred every time they tried to pursue the freedom fighters into the forest, what did they do? They actually used fire and other things to flush out freedom fighters from the forest and later declared those as protected areas and banned communities from accessing those forests. And up to, to date, we retained those national parks and national reserves, as they are called, and we have continued the colonial separation of communities from mm. their natural resources. So that there's a dark side to conservation, yes. that although the public face is about preserving wildlife, that there's also a history that's based more around excluding certain groups, particularly uh, black Africans. Yes, there's a dark history and a dark present. Right now what is happening is there is a setting up of what are being called conservancies, and some are even being called community conservancies. The misnomer so that people can think that these conservancies are being set up by communities. I don't know whether you've read the book by some of my friends, my colleagues. Uh, it's called The Big Conservation Lie. Yes, very good because, book. Yeah, so the setting up of these parks and these conservancies is to further alienate communities from their land and instead set them aside for tourists, high-end tourists. Yes. So basically those high-end tourists will, will be most likely are going to be white people. They come and pay huge amounts of money to spend a night in this pristine Africa, the unspoiled wilderness. Even the words used 
are used to suggest that Africa is polluted by black Africans. The, the ideal situation is it should be completely devoid of human Africans and just wildlife by themselves for the enjoyment of rich white people. So it's it's a continuing narrative. Yes, that's a scary part. Yes, of it. a, a, a deeply yeah. toxic narrative that's that's very much in, ingrained. Obviously, many environmental movements have their their roots, their origins, within eugenics and uh, Nazi ideology. Uh, thinking of the Sierra Club, National yes. Geographic, the Scouts movement, that there there's something enduring about this connection to pristine that. Uh, goes uh, side by side with the idea of excluding uh, black Africans, uh, not just in Africa, but also in Europe. When we spoke earlier, I've, I've mentioned that we experience in the UK a similar um, narrative around us not belonging in these spaces, but more than that, that we harm these spaces um, that we're either incompetent through ignorance or through mistreatment of nature and wildlife. Yes, it's very much a continuing narrative. And I think when I left Kenya Wildlife Service, I went uh, to the U.S., briefly did an MBA just to get away from the, from that uh, colonial conservation setup. Because as long as you work in these institutions, and uh, because I'm also a consultant, I do a lot of consultancy for these same institutions. So if you Google my name and IUCN, you'll see I've produced lots of documents for the IUCN, that's the International Union of Nature Conservation, uh, WWF. And it was during that, my work as a consultant also with these institutions, I realized that these big conservation institutions, they speak from both sides of their mouths. Mm. Within the IUCN, you read documents waxing poetic about the role of communities, how communities lived in harmony and continue to live in harmony with nature, and blah, blah, blah. All those that good stuff you read from IUCN documents. But actually, IUCN is also a major supporter of the fortress conservation. It's a major supporter of the trophy hunting and sport hunting. It's, it's, it's a racist setup that is made to make you feel that we are together. But in actual fact, their core values are against your very being as a black person, mm. your very being as an African. Mm. Well, so to, to, it has been a journey of discovery. Yes. Of just how insidious the whole sector is yes. with regard to Africans. Africans treated as the enemy. Yes. And again, we, we've got um, parallels within the West, in the UK. Increasingly, there are moves to uh, increase diversity of participation within uh, nature activities. And there are more and more programmes emerging which are aimed at black and Asian people. But there's something quite disturbing that some of the big organisations that are launching programmes aimed at, at black people um, higher up the management chain, I know from my own dealings with them, have really quite uncomfortable colonial attitudes towards uh, black and Asian people. So it seems like a similar dynamic of being seen to be operating in a certain way, yet actually you know that that deep down that mindset is still there. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I was looking at your website and it's fascinating the parallels between what you're going through in the UK and what we go through in in Kenya. Mm. And and for me, it's 
It's also been the alienation of the African diaspora from Africa. When you Google safaris to Africa, the images you see are white people coming to Africa to enjoy the, all their safari, go visit the national parks, stay in these nice fancy hotels. So it's, 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 a, it's a very funny message because it has made black Africans in the diaspora actually not think that they can afford or uh, will be welcome come to actually also enjoy nature in Africa. Yes. And yeah. it's been deliberate. Yes. It is by accident. And I think sadly these messages have and become internalised. So now even black people um, sort of choose to to disconnect from nature because they see it as shameful. We are still... Um, given the message that to be close to nature is backward, that there's something primitive and less progressive about a lifestyle that's close to nature, whereas the Western urbanised li- lifestyle is is better, is more advanced. And so some people want to show that they're more um, in tune with an urban lifestyle. The message they send out is also interestingly contradictory because when a white person is in nature, either they're farming they grow their own crops, they don't use, you know, they don't use chemical fertilizers and they, they go and pick the, they pick the eggs from, you know, from the grass. It's promoted as a very romantic and idealistic mm. sort of lifestyle for a white person. But when my mother grows her own crops, she doesn't use chemical fertilizers, she, she actually has her chickens and she will take the eggs from where they've hidden them in the grass and all that. That is promoted as poverty yes. and it is not sustainable. Oh, look at this poor African rural woman. Oh, she does not, she's walking barefoot. Yet when the white person does it, oh, there's a great connection between walking barefoot and and connecting with nature, you you feel the land. It's so it's a very it's a, it's racist. Yes, it's, it, it's racist. It is, and, and it's deeply harmful. That that um, yeah. dub, double message that it's inferior to be close to nature, yet that knowledge is often appropriated by the white middle class uh, environmental sector in particular and then suddenly it has value so they divest us from a relationship with nature and and uh, disparage us for it whilst taking knowledge from us and then using it to say that they are better custodians that um, they're people of principle yes and i learned that the hard way because Having worked with, you know, like doing consultancy work with these big conservation organizations, they say one thing, but they do another thing. And I think as black people, we tend to take people for their word. And they have learned to literally be such experts at talking from both sides of their mouths. It took me time to realize that, no, what I was seeing is the real picture, not what I was hearing. Mm. And that's the message I'm trying to pass on to our fellow black Africans that please look at what the white person does. Don't look, don't just listen to what he says, but look at what he does. Because there is so much self-hatred that we have embraced as normal. They talk about African leaders as being very corrupt, but they'll never tell you who corrupts those African leaders, Mm. especially like in the conservation world so that we stay focused. The conservation world in Kenya, there's so much money being pumped in 
into the development aid arm of the U.S. government to such an extent that the Kenya Wildlife Service as an institution is more an extension of the U.S. policy and way of doing things than responsive to the needs and issues and aspirations of Kenyans. So they use aid to corrupt our institutions and to, to dismantle our institutions and to make our institutions not to be responsive to our issues, but to be agents for their agendas. Mm. So actually, your life service was behind a big push in 2017, a big U.S. lobby for trophy hunting really wanted the reintroduction of sport hunting into Kenya. So working with the Kenya Wildlife Service and others, the big NGOs like the Nature Conservancy, they were really pushing that agenda into Kenya. And it was being bankrolled by USAID. USAID is even supporting the establishment of these community conservancies to even say that it is communities asking for the introduction of the killing of wildlife for sport so that they use that money for conservation. So it's understanding the agenda that they have for us mm. and getting more Kenyans, more black Kenyans and more black Africans to start debunking those myths and to start participating in this conservation politics, yes. because that's what it is yes. at an international level, also at national level. You were touching there on funding, and that seems to be such an important factor in determining who gets to not just control the narrative, but to have a voice uh, within the narrative. Certainly in the UK, it's uh, we really struggle to access funds, yet are repeatedly approached by larger organisations with, with very big budgets, uh, wanting us to work for free for them in terms of trying to engage um, more black people into their programmes. Um but they they don't want to make any effort themselves to consider why they're not engaging people of colour. Um, but also we have this frustration of why they're being given money to do this work when they don't have uh, the skill set within their organisation and then are expecting us to do it for free. Uh, also what that means is it's harder for us to have our perspective heard more widely. Uh, it's very difficult to articulate the issues that we're experiencing without access to funds. And in that way, the white middle class narrative is allowed to dominate. Yes, you get the big conservation organisation have these budgets and then they subcontract national NGOs to do small parts of the programme. So they subcontract the smaller organizations, which are localized, but the big budgets remain with the big conservation organizations. And the whole thing of working for free is a big issue because black people are expected to always give their highly professional services for free. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, that's, a, that's a story. Let's let's leave that for a story for another <laughs> yes. day. Because I've been involved in an organization where you give free work, identifying grantees, assisting the grantees to implement, and you do it for free. But in the U.S., they have a whole organization full of staff. And when you look at the, the faces of the, of the 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 staff in the organization, they are mainly white. Mm. You know, white middle 
jobs in the US, but we are the ones doing the donkey work. But that's a big discussion and it's, that's a story for another day. Because as long as we continue allowing ourselves also to be used yes. for narratives no clue about, we will not be able to use to also use back and push our own narratives. So it's also now, how do we use whatever resources, wherever we'll get them from, to start pushing certain narratives consciously? Because I keep saying the alienation of the black person from nature was done deliberately. Mm. So therefore, also for us to reconnect ourselves to nature and our communities to nature, we need to also do it deliberately. We need to think about it. We need to make strategies. We need to invest in thinking how best to do it. Because something that was deliberately done means there was some thinking behind it. Mm. So it's harder to than just something that occurred naturally. Yes. So, and that's what I've been saying. Anytime we get so small grants from donors, like right now we have a small grant from the Global Environment Facility, GEF, managed by UNDP. I tell my community, let us make sure we use this money not to do things expensively, but to do things very effectively. Like, for example, instead of using the little money we have in expensive hotels, and bringing these expensive consultant experts. We are using it by getting the communities to visit each other. So they use public transport, they go, they live in the community. The person hosting gets some money, but that's much less than you pay in a hotel. But then they also get to visit each other, to talk, you know, share in the evening. It resonates much more with us Africans, how we visit places. Yeah. And there's a big difference between how tourists, white people are tourists and how we, black people, Africans, and the African diaspora, how we enjoy visiting different places. It's very different. We like to hear local stories. We like to eat the local food in the setting. It is something that is much easier for us as Africans to to relate to yes. than going and staying in this Clash Hotel, where you're most probably going to talk with the waiter or the waitress mm -hmm. and hear how they're paid well, salaries, because the waiter is most likely going to be the same color of skin as you. Mm -hmm. Then you're also going to hear about the whole sex tourism industry, yes. and you're going to end up feeling extremely disgusted by your visit, as opposed to enjoying it, because you can't get away from that. But when you visit each other's communities, we hear each other's stories and we see a lot of parallels between what we're going through and what they're going through. Yes, and so holistic because as we've mentioned that wildlife isn't separate from us as, as humans, our cultures and communities. And I think particularly for people in the diaspora that having a homestay visit where you're being introduced to wildlife, but also the cultures that have developed around our relationship with nature is so enriching um, and really deeply connecting to people and place and, and something that's very restorative. I think we both have a focus on addressing trauma in our work in, in terms of a loss of relationship to nature, bringing its own trauma, but also how we came to be disconnected from nature. Yes. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of researchers coming to find out about indigenous knowledge mm. held by our communities. Indigenous knowledge on plants, indigenous knowledge on animal behaviour, and 
That information is then used to design programs to alienate us from the very nature. Yes. So, like, for example, in northern Kenya, communities have a lot of reach to reduce human-wildlife conflict. So in one post, a young person from Isiolo, that's a county in northern Kenya, he talked about how uh, there's an international NGO called Africa Wildlife Foundation. There's another one called Save the Elephant. And then they're always saving these animals. And you always wonder, who are they saving them from? And for whom are they saving this wildlife? So that's, yeah, that, that's always another big discussion. But anyway, so they want talking to the young people and the old people in the community. And the young people are saying, if I take my cows to water at our communal watering point, I cannot take these cows to water in the late afternoon. Because if my father finds out that I've taken the cows to water in the afternoon, I will get a thorough beating because that time is reserved for the wildlife to come and take the water from the communal point. So those systems were set up so that wildlife was taken care of, also the livestock. Mm -hmm. So there was a mutual sharing of even the watering points and even the grazing areas. So that information is then used to set up these, which have been called the community conservancies. And unfortunately, that means the communities are then being told these areas are just for wildlife, so they are being kicked out. Right, yes. They're being told they can now not those areas. So those areas are now being removed from the system. The, especially the areas that are the dry season grazing areas, because that's where there was lots of wetlands, the swamps mm -hmm. and the wetlands. So those areas are where the community conservancies are being set up. And then that water is then now being used to, to water swimming pools for pristine infinity pools where white people can come and enjoy nature. And of course, the abundant wildlife mm -hmm. without the livestock. So the, the, the information is being used against us, yeah. the very indigenous information, yeah. It's incredible the the amount of ways in which traditional knowledge is exploited. So there, there's sort of the manipulation of, of knowledge, which is, is used to exclude people. Obviously, the, the, there are manipulations yeah. of traditional knowledge by big corporations that then use it to uh, create products or innovation, which the profits are then not shared with, with communities. Yeah. There's one case we are fighting. We have a, a lobby group. We, are called, we call ourselves the errant natives. Mm -hmm. And there's a group which has been championed by the, the Nature Conservancy. And it's in the northern part of Kenya. It's called the Northern Rangelands Trust. And they were trying to grab one forest in northern Kenya in a county called Massapit mm. because the whole projects are being funded by USAID, the French Development Agency, Denmark, mm -hmm. and the Netherlands, and the European Union. The French are particularly after indigenous um, medicinal plants. In there's a there's a forest in in Marsabit which has indigenous plants that are known to cure cancers. So they are targeting those, and they are in endemic to that area. And the knowledge is of course also endemic to that area. So they pretend they are coming to help you conserve, mm. but they are coming to steal from you. Yeah. It it's, yeah. it's feels really, um, there's something sinister about the way conservation is used as a smokescreen for exploitation, uh, whether it's yes. socially or whether it 
to do with the pharmaceutical industry or extraction, um, that, that there's a, a dishonest narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now, now it's not all doom and gloom. For Kenya, we now have a growing uh, Kenyan black middle and lower class that are getting more engaged in mm. conservation directly. We're also getting more people in the urban areas to participate in the conservation of the green spaces within the city. Because what we found is that if we don't embrace these green spaces within the cities, they are being grabbed by the rich mm. and converted into these shopping malls, which are, you know, because everybody wants to shop for the same products globally. So so what you ha- we now have is a, a growing network of middle class and urban Africans engaging with the conservation of specific forests, specific wetlands, and specific areas, green areas within the city. Mm. And that's now what we try to build upon. So we organize uh, people to come visit. We have a forest that's very near the city. It's called the Water Forest. The water is actually a corruption of the word Scotland because that, that forest was named after the Scotland mission that came to spread the Bible, the, the, the Scotland right. mission, it, yes. it spread the Bible in that area. They destroyed a lot of the indigenous trees in that in that area, which were used for the, the railway steam engines, and then replaced them with eucalyptus exotics. But they left small sections of the indigenous forest. And now we're getting people to visit, to come visit. So I've got a very active group from the university, Kenyatta University, and they come, they come regularly, and they they're able to even fundraise and make, you know, they, they they make their own snacks and they use public transport, so they're able to come and spend a whole a whole day in the forest very cheaply, and it's been really nice to see that. Because another thing that is happening with our green spaces in the urban areas, they they are being grabbed by private sector people and then being converted into housing estates or being converted to shopping malls. And one such forest is the Karura Forest. It's a forest right at the outskirts of the city. And the, the late Professor Wangari Matai was actually beaten up very badly by the government, uh, goons who were sent by the government, because she fought against the grabbing of that land by rich politicians during the late president Moy's reign. And her struggles went international and eventually that forest was secured. They they had already moved in, had already started construction and they were all moved out and the forest was secured. But unfortunately, it was then grabbed by private sector, East Africa Breweries Limited, which is a Kenyan company that has majority shares are held by British people. So it's really not even a local company. So they fenced off that forest and they're nice nature trails, but now they've made it so expensive mm. for the average Kenyan to go into the forest and enjoy a bike ride or enjoy jogging. Because even photography, for you to go in with a camera, you have to pay 10,000 shillings just to get into the forest with a camera. So it's not being used by expatriates. It's being used by UN staff because it's very near the UNEP, United Nations Environment Program. So that's what we don't want to happen to our green spaces. That's why I was very happy when the young people coming and enjoying the forest 
it's a government forest, so it belongs to all of us, but mm -hmm. it does not belong to individual. So we, when we as communities stake a claim to it, then we, we then set the tone of how it will be enjoyed and we keep out the over-commercialization of our green spaces yes. by private sector. Do the young people naturally see these spaces as being theirs or is there a view that they somehow are for other people? There's been that alienation. So a lot of young people see these forests as belonging to the government. Mm. And it's been deliberately done. They don't see it like it's a forest you can just walk into and just take a walk. So different interest groups have been staking a claim. So if you have a forest near your area and you can organize a group of people to start activities in that forest, then you form a group called Friends of Karura Forest mm -hmm. or Friends of Aboretum, the Nairobi Aboretum. Then you, for all uh, intents and purposes, you stick a claim to that forest. It's a government forest, but then you start engaging the Kenya Forest Service and the Kenya Wildlife Service in its management. So several people have done it, but it's been normally the expatriate community mm. that has done that to several forests. So what we did, we use their own tactics and have done it for uh, the water forest. So we have now a, a group we are calling ourselves Friends of the Water Forest. So so then now in ours, we make sure that we keep, we don't uh, make it like it's exclusive for rich people. So that's how we encourage the young people to visit. We make it that they can come and you know eat, bring their own snacks so that it costs less. We provide you know drinking water so that they can come enjoy themselves. And then they help by planting trees and securing it. So there is definitely been an alienation of communities, especially the urban dwellers with their, their green spaces in and around the city and also in the countryside. Mm. It sounds really positive, though, that with the work you and others are doing, that um, things are changing and people are passionately looking after and caring and feeling that they uh, are part of uh, the conservation movement. Yeah, it, it is. And I would really like to invite people from the diaspora to also come and visit because we strengthen each other. Because I think we've been also deliberately kept apart. And I think we also have to make deliberate efforts to come and start sharing our stories because they are not different. They are actually the same story happening in different parts of yes. the world. So if we have more people from the diaspora coming and visiting, then we'll even change the whole mindset of how tourist, how a tourist looks mm -hmm. like. That's happening Africans, black Kenyans are going to these national parks now. They're finding ways where you don't have to have an expensive four by four. You can use public transport. So there are those movements of young people, older people doing that. If we could also link across the oceans, I think that would be a very powerful movement. Yes. And I think now is the time with a resurgent sense of assertiveness and confidence around African identity, whether it's the year of return to Ghana, um, but more and more there's this positive sense of, of reconnection with the diaspora and Africa. And 
what particularly attracts me is learning from our elders in Africa with a respect for that knowledge rather than getting the, the remnants of, of what a white middle class uh, gatekeeper tells us about their experiences of Africa, which has for a long time been all we've been left with in the UK. I think everybody is envious of the amazing heritage, natural heritage we have in Africa. Everybody is envious mm. and they'd like to stake it for themselves and push us aside. But it's time we stake it and embrace it. It is our heritage. We were given by God, the creator. So I think we need to really embrace it and treasure it and make sure that nobody just takes it and, 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 and defines for us how we should interact with it. Yes. I think we need to be now taking charge of the narrative and embracing what is ours. I think that the way that global cultures are going where increasingly populations are fragmented, disconnected from each other, there's social disharmony, that having a close relationship to the natural world is so deeply valuable and having a culture which is so closely entwined with the knowledge of the natural world is so enriching that it, it really is time that we value and respect and, and raise up um, these knowledge systems uh, is something that people will be desperate to learn from because of the the lack of intimacy in other areas of cultural life. Violet, I'm really grateful for your time today. It's, it's been fascinating. Um, I just wanted to to mention, we mentioned the big conservation line. If people aren't familiar with it, I really recommend it. And just to reference Dr. Mordecai Ogarda and John Mbaria, the authors of, of that book. Violet, if, if people want to learn more about your work, how can they get in touch? How can they find out more? We have a local community-based organisation. We are called Millennium Community Development Initiatives, MCDI. So we have a website. It's www.mcdikenya.org. Those are tools that we can use to rally our fellow black Blacks to come round and embrace their heritage. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been a real okay, pleasure to you. listen. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to Black Nature Narratives. Check back soon for new episodes. If you're in the UK and want to be part of a community of people of colour gathering in nature in real life, Sign up to wildinthecity.org.uk for updates, events and membership. To support this podcast, visit our Patreon page or the link below.